You're listening to Rowan Radio On Demand. Download more podcasts at rowanradio.com. The following program does not represent the views or opinions of the staff or administration of Rowan University or Rowan Radio. 89.7 WGLS-FM. Rowan Radio 89.7 WGLS-FM proudly presents Career Talk, a monthly program featuring information on career and academic planning sponsored by the Rowan University Office of Career Advancement. And now, here's your host, the Assistant Director of the Office of Career Advancement, Reuben Britt. Carter G. Woodson, the father of black history, once said, real education means to inspire people to live more abundantly, to learn to begin with life as they find it, and make it better. My guest today reflects that quote because she has truly been an inspiration to so many people as an educator and as an advocate for history. Joining us today is historian, writer, educator, and award-winning scholar, Dr. Teresa Runstedler. Teresa, welcome to Career Talk. Thanks so much for having me. Teresa, can you tell our listeners about your professional career journey? Because, I mean, it's very extensive. I've had a chance to uh, read your bio, but can you tell our, our listeners about it? Sure. I, I'm actually originally from Ontario, Canada, a city called Kitchener, which probably your listeners have not heard of, but it's about uh, an hour from Toronto, Ontario. And, you know, I grew up the daughter of a teacher and a nurse uh, who also then became a homemaker. And, um, you know, I kind of did the typical thing. I went to uh, school and then eventually made it to university. And at the time, I thought that I wanted to become a teacher, much like my dad. He was a high school math teacher for over 30 years in Ontario. Um, but I got to college and I did really well in uh, in my classes. And one of my professors kind of put a little bug in my ear about potentially following that up and going to graduate school and, you know, becoming an academic. And I sort of thought about it for a little bit, but, you know, wasn't really sure as many folks who are, you know, 19, 20 years old, you don't always know what you want to do. Um, But partway through my, my time in university, I had a friend who dared me to go to um, the auditions for the Toronto Raptors dance pack. And I thought, ah, you know, let's go for a laugh and see what happens. Because I grew up uh, taking dance lessons. I was also an avid soccer player, and I started out figure skating. So I was very much into athletics and dance. And I ended up making it on the team. It shocked the. It shocked me <laughs> that I had made it on the team. There were, you know, between six and seven hundred folks at the open audition. Wow! And yeah, that that was the second year of the team's existence, um, and that was that was my my job during university for the last two years of my university career. I was a history major and an English minor. Um, Again, didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I, I kind of fell in love with um, performing 
and just seeing behind the scenes of how a sports team worked and what it took to, you know, put on a, a, a the spectacle of a professional basketball game. Um, and when I graduated, much to my parents' chagrin, I continued dancing. I didn't really have a plan uh, of what I wanted to do exactly, but I felt kind of burnt out hmm. after, you know, just working and also I had to maintain um, a certain GPA to maintain a scholarship that I had at York University in Toronto. And so there was a lot of pressure on me and I felt like there was no margin for error. So I think when I got to my senior year, I was just kind of burnt out from really trying to achieve and just burning the candle at both ends for such a long time while also working as a dancer. And I needed time to regroup and just think about what I wanted to do. And initially I thought, well, maybe I want to go into some form of media. I didn't know what that meant. I thought maybe if I, you know, wanted to pursue work behind the camera as opposed to in front of the camera, which I had been doing a lot of, um, during university and then shortly thereafter, I, I picked up an agent and became a freelance dancer in Toronto. And there was a, there was a lot of activity at that time in Toronto. I'm not sure what the industry is like there now, but lots of movies, American movies, music videos, et cetera, were being made in Toronto. So I was able to support myself that way. Um, but I also realized it wasn't a long-term career path for me. I didn't really want to become a choreographer. I just couldn't sort of see the next step beyond just dancing for me. So I ended up going back to school for a year to do a program in radio and television production. And I made it about halfway through that program and I ended up dropping out. Um, I, I ran out of money, truthfully, and I didn't want to take out a student loan at that time. And I took a leave of absence and I started working at a, a national uh, television network that had uh, sports coverage. It was called Sportsnet. And I was working in the audience relations and public relations department basically liaising with the public and answering questions about coverage, taking any complaints and things like that. Um, so I realized pretty early on through that job, I only had that job for a little over a year, that this is probably not the best fit for me. I did not want to be in a kind of corporate environment behind a desk mm -hmm. working nine to five. Um, and so I, you know, started to really think about what was the thing that, what were the skills that I had? What were the things that I did during, you know, growing up and also in university that I excelled at? And I realized, well, you know, I did really, really well at school. You know, I had really good grades. I seemed to be able to write academic papers very well. And I've, I've really enjoyed going deep into topics and subjects. And that's when I decided to go back to school 
this was after three years away from school, I applied to a bunch of graduate schools in the United States because my professors, many of them were actually American um, from my university in Toronto. Hmm. They told me this, you know, if you want to get a PhD, go to the United States because you can get a stipend to study. You can actually get paid to study. Whereas, you know, the situation was a little bit less secure in terms of getting adequate funding um, to pursue your graduate studies in Canada. And also, too, Canadian universities love Ivy League American degrees. Um, so if you ever want to go back, it's a lot easier to go back with the sort of stamp of approval of an Ivy League school. So I ended up going to graduate school and from there um, majored in history and African-American studies. And that was sort of my journey into becoming an academic. So it's not the typical story where I just went from one program to the next program. I kind of dabbled around and, you know, my I, I think I worried my parents a lot <laughs> in my early 20s because they were wondering what I was doing and what the plan was. But I do think that, that that testing of things in my early 20s, late teens, early 20s, actually helped me figure out how to become, you know, self-directed, create my own schedule, create my own set of goals, because there's nobody looking over my shoulder. I was a freelancer. And that those skills that I learned um, from that period of my life has mm -hmm. been really super valuable um, to me as a, an academic. Now, you talked about that you pursued a, 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 your, your, your PhD in African-American history. What prompted your interest in, in, in that particular uh, topic? Well, growing up in Canada... Uh, one of the things that was largely missing from my education, whether in grade school, high school, and then all the way through to my university career, was any discussion of racism, um, any discussion of colonialism, um, very little discussion of you know, what that looked like in the Canadian context and very little discussion of what that looked like in a global context. And I felt like, you know, that was a huge hole in my education. And so part of the plan initially was, um, and this, this was largely inspired by a class that I took, I think it was my last year of university, I took a, a class in civil rights history with an American professor at York University, and it just, it blew my mind. Um, the other class that I can remember very distinctly was what they called third world literature. I, I love that class. I also took a class in race and ethnicity, and those were all of my favorite classes because I think they helped me make sense of, you know, what I saw in Canada but didn't have a language for yet. So the, the initial goal was to go to the United States, go where people had been, you know, studying this stuff, um, had developed a whole theory 
and language for this study had been doing the historical research into it and just learn as much as I can and then potentially go back to Canada and try and, you know, insert more of that into the Canadian curriculum. But anyone who knows um, what graduate study is like knows that it takes a long time to get a PhD. So it took me six years to do my degree. Um, and by that time, you know, it's some pretty influential years in your life. I started out age 26 and I graduated when I was, I guess, what, 32. And I had met the man who became my husband in the United States and he didn't really want to move to Canada and I didn't, you know, I didn't really um, have a lead on a job in Canada. So I ended up staying in the U.S. Um, and I've, I've been here since 2001. So I'm, I'm approaching the amount of time, almost the same amount of time in the U.S. as I spent in Canada growing up. Um, but yeah, I, I just felt like I could learn so much from folks who had been pursuing this angle of study for so long and that there were so many opportunities to just learn and soak it all in. Um, so that was initially what attracted me to, to coming here and, and to learning everything I could about critical race theory and African-American studies. Mm. Well, I can tell you this. Um, I have a good friend of mine who, you know, he's into uh, uh, black history and uh, we share books. You know, did you check this book out? Or I'll send him a book or he'll send me a book. And uh, about a month and a half ago, he sent me your book um, entitled Black Ball, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Spencer Haywood and the Generation That Saved the Soul of the NBA. What inspired you to write this book? So part of it, I think, came out of earlier research that I had started to do. Um, I was looking actually at the Len Bias story from 1986, Len Bias being a young man who was drafted out of the University of Maryland College Park by the Boston Celtics and was slated to be one of the new superstars of the NBA and unfortunately, he died of, of a cocaine overdose shortly after he was drafted. And it inspired this call, particularly among uh, conservatives like President Ronald Reagan, uh, for a call for a more punitive war on drugs. Um, and he became this kind of racialized symbol of um, black disorder, particularly um you know, disorder, chaos, criminality among young black men. So I wanted to know why. So I started, you know, rewinding and going back in history to figure out why that connection, you know, was by the time you got to 1986, such common sense for the media and for U.S. citizens. And I, I discovered that this narrative of the black athlete particularly black male professional athletes as being criminally uh, inclined, as being um, drug addled, as needing a kind of white paternalistic oversight, what had been part of really the rise of, of African-Americans in professional basketball 
since the, uh, the, the late 1960s and across the entire decade of the 1970s. So, you know, from an academic standpoint, that's sort of where I entered the, the conversation. From a personal standpoint, as I mentioned earlier, I was part of the Toronto Raptors dance pack. I still have a longstanding connection to my friends who were part of that endeavor in the late 1990s. You know, we're, we're actually having another reunion this summer um, with folks who worked in game operations, folks who were on the dance team, some of the, the early uh, players of the team. And so, you know, part of it was also trying to figure out what, what were the racial dynamics of the NBA before I arrived, you know, in uh, Toronto uh, with the, the dance pack in the late 1990s. But, you know, I saw a lot of things when I was, you know, somebody in their early 20s dancing on the team and sort of saw how the NBA wanted to curate a particular version of blackness that was largely depoliticized and also made quote unquote safe for the average white fan. And I saw that as a dancer as well in terms of how they styled us and what kind of music we were able to dance to and who we were supposed to be really performing for, which, you know, we were told was, you know, the folks who sat on the floor and had the expensive seats. And so, you know, in terms of the kind of race, race and class hierarchy of modern basketball stadiums, other than a sprinkling of black celebrities, we're really talking about white corporate money. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the time, you know, I didn't really have an analysis of it. So part of doing this book was trying to figure out, you know, what what is that longer history that... I, you know, uh, by happenstance, kind of stepped into well, trying to figure out. Well, one know, of the things dynamics were. Well, one of the things that that impressed me about the book, and uh, I, I, is that you really go deep. You don't. A lot of these uh, journalists, and I'm not going to mention their names or anything. Sometimes they only go back to like the the 80s, maybe the 70s a little bit, but you really go even further and and uh, and i i i often say hey there was life before the 1970s or or before the 80s and you and you talk about um things like uh, the the um the uh Connie Hawkins for for instance in terms of how he was blackballed from the NBA um also you talk about uh the um the the creation of the ABA can you shed some light on, because um, um, a lot of people really don't know about Connie Hawkins. Um, they only know about Michael Jordan, Larry Bird, Mary, Magic Johnson. But Connie Hawkins was some, some kind of a uh, talented ball player who never really got the opportunity to really show his, his, his great skills because by the time he, uh, he was able to play in the NBA, you know, he was kind of on the downside in terms of his, uh, his career. So can you shed some light on that? Sure. I mean, Connie Hawkins is probably one of the greatest players who most people have never seen play. And, you know, it's, it's, it truly is a tragic story, even though 
you know, in the end, he becomes triumphant. Uh, when he was a young man, he, uh, you know, he, he's from New York, played on the playground courts of New York, came into contact with one of the masterminds behind the 1961 game-fixing scandal in college ball. And somehow he got unjustly implicated in that scandal. He had just finished uh, one semester of college ball, got you know taken back to New York City, didn't have any legal representation, was put in uh, a hotel by himself, no access to talking to his mother, no, again, no access to a lawyer, was told very little about what was going on. He was interrogated day after day about his alleged involvement in this game-fixing scandal. And finally, you know, like most people who are put under those conditions, he ended up implicating himself in, a, you know, a coerced confession and spoke that confession in front of the grand jury. Now, unfortunately, uh, you know, this story really stuck to him, even though there was absolutely no evidence that he was involved in this game-fixing scandal. And so a couple things happened. He got kicked out of the NCAA, could not play NCAA ball. Uh, you know, once he was eligible to actually start uh you know, or to be drafted into the NBA, which at the time was the only game in town, right. operated very much like a monopoly. Uh, they basically conspired to keep him out of the league um, without doing any kind of due diligence on whether or not he was actually part of the scandal. Now, keep in mind, he had never actually been arrested, charged, or convicted of anything. It was all just based on rumors. And so, you know, and this is where the, the ADA comes in. So the American Basketball Association, right around the time when Connie Hawkins was being uh, blackballed by the NBA, came into existence. So there was a period of time where he was actually able to play decent professional basketball because Prior to that, he had to play for small, semi-professional teams. He was scraping together a living. Of course, he couldn't, he couldn't afford to go to college because the, the basketball scholarship, which was taken from him, was his only way of going to college. He ended up becoming a huge star in the American Basketball Association, which at the time was a rival league that came into existence from 1967 to 1976. Um, and one of the things about the ABA uh, coming into existence was that it created competition for the NBA. Uh, Teresa, so the NBA, I want to I yeah. hold that thought for just a minute. We're going to take a break. Um, you're listening to Career Talk. We're joined today by historian, writer, educator, and award-winning scholar, Dr. Teresa Runstedler. And she's talking about the... the uh, the tragedy of, of Connie Hawkins in terms of him being blackballed, but we're going to hear more from her in just a minute, so stay with us. Welcome back to Career Talk. We're here today with Dr. Teresa Runstedler, who is a historian, writer, and educator, and award-winning scholar. Um, before the break, you were talking about 
the the uh, ABA being a rival of the NBA and 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 Connie Hawkins being barred. Uh, you may uh, can you uh, sh- continue to share that information? Sure. So Connie Hawkins, um, like many black players at the time, uh, found opportunity in the ABA because the ABA needed talent. The NBA at the time did um, you know or had what was known popularly as an informal racial quota, whereby uh, any one team could have could have only a certain number of black players. They didn't want it to become a black-dominated sport. With the advent of the ABA, players like Connie Hawkins, who had been blackballed uh, from the NBA unjustly, um, players who uh, you know had been passed over because of the informal racial quota, found a place to play professional ball and high-level professional ball. And um, it really gave the players uh, a lot of leverage against the NBA. And so, you know, Connie Hawkins ended up suing the NBA for uh, essentially blacklisting him as a violation of the Sherman Antitrust Act. He ends up winning his, his case. The, the NBA realized that, oh, whoops, yeah, he wasn't actually involved in the game-fixing scandal and that it was going to be a huge embarrassment if that case went to court. So they ended up settling with him, and he was able to get into the NBA finally. And what that case really did was it exposed how the NBA operated like a monopoly And in operating like a monopoly, it was affecting the ability of all players um, to, you know, uh, control their careers, but particularly black players. Mm -hmm. And so it was such an important part of really black players in particular leading the charge to reshape uh, the power dynamics between the team owners which at the time were all white, and players who were increasingly throughout the 70s becoming more and more black. Yeah. Now, um, one of the things that you, you, you talk about in the book is the, uh, the dark ages. Uh, is that, was that part of what you were just telling us about, or what is, what, can you tell us about the dark ages in the NBA? So typically the dark ages... Um, when we're talking about that in terms of the NBA, we're thinking about the mid to late seventies. And it's, it's often this narrative about the NBA as being a league in decline, a league that has, you know, players who were lazy, who were using drugs, who were violent, who had criminal tendencies and that, you know, the reason for the decline of the NBA was the poor behavior of these players and that the league was too black, you know, too violent, too out of control. And so, you know, if I wanted to trace the line between what was happening to Connie Hawkins in the early part of the seventies to that period of the dark ages, I think in some ways the dark ages were, a moment of of white backlash against a lot of the actions um, of players like Connie Hawkins, 
and also Spencer Haywood and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar to really assert themselves and to challenge the monopoly of the team owners and to challenge some of the expectations of white fans and to challenge really um, our notions of, of how basketball should be played and how much control uh, players should have over the trajectory of their careers. Well, you know, um, one of the things that uh, when you talk, of course, when I saw Kareem's name on, on the cover of your book and Spencer Haywood is, is uh, and I'm dating myself, uh, I, I remember how the NCAA, you know, uh, came up with a plot to s- try to stop Kareem Abdul-Jabbar because he was such a dominant player, and whenever he got near the basket, it was a slam dunk. So they outlawed dunking, which affected me. I was in high school and in college. I could not dunk. Um, and I also remember Spencer Haywood, who uh, was the first hardship uh, case. And also, uh, if you remember, in 1968, some of the top black collegiate basketball players boycotted the Olympics. Spencer Haywood uh, did play on the Olympic team and played with a, a guy who I played summer, uh, summer league ball with and summer pro league in Boston. I grew up in Boston. Uh, Jojo White happened to be on that team. Okay. So, you know, when you, you talk about how, how uh, you talk about the, the, the disparity in terms of the, the uh, uh, black players as opposed to whites and they saw that the NBA was becoming more blacks, um, Ebony used to come out with a magazine every year and they would list all the the black players on each team in both in the ABA and the NBA and you could see the disparity um, when you look and you compared it with the ABA and the NBA. So you really hit a lot of key points there. Um, is there anything else uh, that you can share with us? I know there are a lot of things that you cover in here from, I mean, when you went all the way back to the 50s, you talked about this, the, the tragic story of Maurice Stokes and, and um, you know, um, some and also, you know, some of the things that that uh, like Oscar Robinson, uh, who was when they were talking about trying to maybe merge the NBA with the ABA back in 1971, and how he, you know, he had the player support in terms of uh, trying to, um, um, you know, get the NBA not to to merge with them back then. But you cover a lot of great things in your book. Um, can you? Is there anything you can kind of summarize briefly? Summarize your book. Um, because I'm telling you, as as a uh, one who who's a, a, a an edu- educator and a reader and a writer myself, this is probably one of the, the best books uh, out there on the market. And, and um, but, anyways, can you shed some light in terms of uh, or summarize a little bit more about the book? Um, yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for your kind words. I mean, when I was writing this book, what I really wanted to do was to give these guys their due for really reshaping professional basketball in this critical period, which is often overlooked, which is often disparaged as a quote-unquote dark age. And one of the ways that I was able to do that was to actually think of them as workers, as you know, professionals, as folks who were really trying to gain more control over their careers. And so in some ways, the book is, it's, it's a book about sports, but it's also a book about athletes as laborers, really right. trying to organize collectively, 
to make change in their industry. And they made a a number of changes, which you uh, referenced. You know, they brought down the four-year rule, you know, in terms of Spencer Haywood challenging this artificial rule that kept players out of the draft until they were four years beyond their college uh, or beyond their high school graduation, which in essence was a way for the NBA to uh, keep the NCAA as its free farm system. They brought down the reserve clause, which uh, at the time in the early 1970s, it kept players essentially uh, in a form of economic bondage with right. their teams. Um, they could not uh, become free agents. There was no such thing as free agency. Um, and for black players who, uh, you know, understood that they were part of a longer history of bondage of different forms, for them, this was an intolerable situation. And so they organized to try and change that. So I think really what I'm trying to do is show that athletes had a point of view. They had an analysis of their own industry. They had agency and uh, both individual and collectively and that they sought to change things because often we think of athletes as just, you know, folks who are in the limelight, who are on the field or on the court, but we don't think about the day-to-day of what that actually means to be somebody who's expected to be a representative to be somebody who's in the media, to be somebody who has to negotiate contracts and figure out how to um, address team owners and how to make change in their industry and how to to climb up the ladder and and figure out what their careers are beyond their playing days. You're right. And so I really wanted to give that more holistic picture of what it meant uh, to be a, a black basketball player from that time period. Thank you. And now your career tip of the day, developing network skills, networking skills, always keep copies of your resume and networking cards on hand. You never know who you're going to meet and where. Remember that every word counts, no matter where you are. Choose your words wisely because recruiters listen to everything you say. You've been listening to Career Talk. I would like to thank my guests, historian, author, speaker, and award-winning scholar, and the author of the book, Black Ball, Kareem, Abdul-Jabbar, Spencer Haywood, and the generation that saved the soul of the NBA, Dr. Teresa Runstedler, for being on the show. You've been listening to Career Talk. Until next time, stay positive, and remember, success does not come to you. You go to it. You've been listening to Career Talk, a monthly program featuring information on career and academic planning, sponsored by the Rowan University Office of Career Advancement. Tune in on the first Saturday of every month at 9 a.m. for another edition of Career Talk, only on Rowan Radio 89.7 WGLS-FM.